Well, Jill mentioned that uh, she's in healthcare, she's a nurse, and I wanted to take the opportunity, if you have a bulletin, turn to the back of that bulletin, and I wanted to draw your attention to something that Jeff wrote. In fact, if I could, if you would, raise your hand if you're involved in healthcare in any way, doctor, nurse, involved, okay. We want you guys to know that we sincerely appreciate the work that you're doing and have been doing on the front lines to just fight the fight and uh, continue to battle for the lives of those that you may not even know, but you care deeply about. So we genuinely appreciate your love and devotion and uh, glad to see your face this morning. So thank you for all you're doing. Well, more and more, we're living life in the extremes. We see this in our extreme sports that continue to evolve from one generation to the next. It seems that as if one generation wants to push the boundaries beyond the previous generation. For example, we had rock climbing for many years, which is not a safe sport, but at least you're tied up to ropes as you're climbing up the face of a mountain. But then it turned into free climbing, where you would do the very same thing without any ropes. And I think it's total craziness, but that's what people do. Then you had bungee jumping. That was popular back in the day, but now you have base jumping where you jump off of a skyscraper. Back in the day, you had parachutes. Now we have wingsuits where you jump out and, and, and fly like a bird, but that's not how God made you, so I don't understand that either. But we see all these extremes. We see extremes in our dieting, right? No sugar, no carbs, only eat meat, only eat vegetables. It's kind of an all or nothing sort of deal. And there's very rarely any middle ground. And increasingly over time, it seems like our whole population is being polarized to the extremes. We see it in our politics, in our opinions, in our practices. But religion is no exception. We see plenty of extremes there as well. In fact, on one end of the spectrum, you have the extreme of legalism, where you're living by the letter of the law trusting in a pattern of behavior instead of trusting in a person. You're depending on your performance instead of trusting in God's provision. It's legalism. But on the other extreme is what's known as antinomianism. It's a fancy word that basically says no law. This is the opinion that the law no longer applies, that none of the Old Testament commandments have any relevance to New Testament Christianity. And this morning, Paul is going to address what it means to, to live in the extremes, and he's going to warn us. He's going to warn us that living in the extremes often leads to dangerous distortions of truth, because either extreme gives you a distorted view of God. And Paul wants us to see that grace is ultimately the antidote to these life extremes. Only when we see life through the gospel. Do we really understand and have an accurate view of God and of ourselves? And the scripture gives us that balance. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that as we've been singing and as we often see in scripture, we are prone to wonder. We are prone to go our own way, rely on our own wisdom, form our own opinions, and many times they don't line up with what you say is true. And so this morning, I would ask, Lord, that by the work of your spirit, by the power of your word, that you would realign our hearts and our minds and even our lives together to what is good, to what is right, and to what is true. Help us to be bound by the truth of your word, and may it dictate our opinions, our practices, and all that we do in life. 
May we see that a little more clearly this morning. Would you change our hearts? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. And uh, we'll pick up where we left off last. So beginning there in chapter 7, verse 1. You will read along with me. Paul writes and says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking of those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction or authority over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. And Paul begins this chapter by saying, do you not know, and that statement should sound familiar by now because it's at least the third time that he said it in recent verses. And every time he does, he uses it as a marker. He wants to introduce a foundational truth to Christian living, and that's, there's no exception here. In this particular truth, Paul says, has relevance to those who know the law. And I think he's particularly speaking to his Jewish audience, but not only his Jewish audience, because the, the principle applies to both Jew and Gentile, to all who follow Christ. And the reason we know that's true in this passage is because he says, brethren, all the brothers and sisters in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, this applies to each of us. He begins by making the point that laws are established to have authority over our lives. And that's true of any law, whether we're talking civil law or biblical law. But in particular here, Paul is talking about the laws and commandments of the Bible. These are God-given laws that serve as boundaries to our behavior. And God designed these laws to be protective and to promote the, the common good of all people. Ultimately, God's law is a reflection of God's holy character. And he established this law to have authority over the lives of his people. But Paul clarifies, this law only applies to the living. And he goes on and gives an example to help make his point. He says, take marriage as an example. By God's design, marriage was intended between one man and one woman for a lifetime. It was a lifetime commitment, not a contractual agreement. That's why we talk about marriage as a covenant relationship. Because in that covenant relationship, you're removing all the conditions. And you're committing to love each other in sickness and in health, for rich or for poor, until life sets us apart. That's what Paul is making the point here. Jesus emphasized this same point in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, when he says, so there are no longer two, talking about this couple who's been joined together in marriage, they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So it's clear, God designed the marriage relationship to be a lifetime commitment of love. And the only reason, Paul says, that this would not apply is if a spouse dies. Because in that case, and he uses the woman as an example, if a woman is unhappy in her marriage and she goes outside the marriage relationship to be joined with another man, he says that would be adultery. 
And I want you to notice here that God's law not only defines the marriage relationship created by God, but it also defines the violation of that marriage relationship and tells us what that is. He says it's adultery. Adultery is a willful decision to defy the law of God. It is a rebellious sin that is condemned by God's law. God's holy law has authority over his divinely ordained relationship. But the law loses its authority, Paul says, when their spouse dies. So in this example, he says this woman would be released from the bond of marriage if her husband dies. And he goes on, it says, having been released, she is then free to be joined to another man without condemnation from the law because the law no longer applies in that case. In the same way, using that example, Paul then turns to our lives and he says, when you died with Christ, the laws of condemnation no longer apply to you. Having been released from the law's condemnation, you are now free to be joined to another. More specifically, you are being free to be united by faith with Christ. You enter into a new relationship with a completely different outcome. Might help to explain it this way. You can look at your marriage to the law, if you will, as a really bad marriage. Because all the law did was highlight your flaws. That's miserable, right? It took the opportunity to be condemning and critical every time you fell short. No one wants to live in that relationship. That doesn't give you life and purpose. In your marriage to the law, you could never, ever measure up. It was a bad marriage. But in this new relationship with Christ, he affirms your acceptance before God. He introduces you into the family of the forgiven. People just like you who have a new life in Christ because of this new relationship through faith. It's a relationship that Paul says leads you to bear fruit for God. I think what he means here is this idea of giving to others out of the overflow of what you've received from him. So the blessing that you receive flows into the lives of those around you. So this new relationship then is not only good for you, it's good for those around you. You love as you've been loved. You forgive as you've been forgiven. This new relationship not only shapes who you are, but it shapes all the relationships around you. Look at how it continues in verse 5. It says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. You see, the old relationship with the law was not only a bad marriage, we were not a good person. We, we contributed to our dysfunction. Anytime someone comes to me and they tell me they're having trouble in their marriage, but it's all the other person's fault, I know they're dead wrong. Because it's never just one person. Well, very often when we come to this relationship with the law, we think it's the law's fault, but we need to understand that we've contributed to the dysfunction. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we lived in the lust of the flesh, in the desires of the, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children 
of wrath. The, the law then simply provoked our sinful nature. Because look, when someone has a rebellious heart, the last thing they want to be told is no. They push against any kind of authority. If you give them a boundary, they're going to step over it. That's what it means to have a rebellious heart. And that's who we were apart from Christ. Chuck Swindoll gives an interesting story about a hotel that was built in Galveston. It was built right up next to the seashore. And so they were concerned, the owners of the hotel were concerned, so they put signs in the room that said, please do not fish off the balcony. Can you guess what happened? Everybody fished off the balcony. And they had a problem because whenever they would start to pull in their lines, which would have these weights on the end of them, they would bang against the window on the first floor, which happened to be a restaurant, which was not very enjoyable. And so they said, well, how are we going to deal with this? What do we do to get people to stop fishing off the balcony? Well, they thought, well, let's first take down the signs and see what happens. You know what happened? Nobody was fishing anymore because nobody was told they couldn't. And Paul is saying, that's the way it works for us. Our rebellious nature is always at work, pushing against the authority of God's law. It was actively involved in our choices and in our behavior. The, the, ball, the law did bring condemnation, but we invited it. It exposed our sinful nature. It provoked our rebellious heart. And notice the contrast in this section to what he said in the previous verses. Instead of being fruit for God, what does it say? It says it bore fruit for death. And we know that's true because the wages of sin is death. We earned that. We willfully rebelled against the law and were bound to its condemnation. But Paul says, when you died with Christ, it all changes. You are released from that bond. Instead of being ruled by sin, now you live under the authority of Christ's love. And this new relationship causes us to become a new person. See, because the old relationship with the law brought out the worst in us, right? It reveals our sin. This new relationship of the Spirit in Christ brings out the best in us. And we know that's true from our own experiences, right? We find that we become the best person when we're in a relationship with the right people. I'm telling you right now, I am a much better person today having been married to my wife for 29 years because she has shaped my life for the better. And you become a better person when you are in the right relationship. And that's what Paul is trying to teach us because now we serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the law. Remember, the law provoked our sinful nature. It, it stirred our rebellious heart. But the Spirit, the Spirit transforms our heart. It, it gives us an, a new desire in our heart so that our greatest joy is not fulfilling selfish pleasures, but actually fulfilling the will of God because that's where we see His goodness in our lives. Unlike condemnation from the law, we turn to Jesus and we find grace. He forgives our sins. He leads us to something better. Instead of fulfilling selfish desires, we find joy in fulfilling the will of God. We increasingly become like the one we are united to. And that's why the Bible tells us when we are related to Christ, we become more and more like him as we learn to live in relationship with him. 
Look at how he continues in verse seven. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is death. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin. Taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? No, may it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. After all that Paul has been saying about the law and what it means to live in this kingdom of condemnation, it's logical for someone to hear that and say, well, then the law must be the reason for my sin. And if that's the case, then the law, therefore, is sinful. But Paul says, may it never be. In fact, he goes on and says, the law is righteous, it is good, it is right. It's good because ultimately it was established by God. That's why it's good. So the law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. And he goes on to make that point by giving us three benefits of the law that was established by God. Paul says that the law reveals our sin. He says it provokes our sin, and then lastly, it condemns our sin. Paul uses coveting as an example. He could have chosen any of the sins, but he chose that one, I think, in part because it's one we can all relate to. Every one of us has desired to have something that belongs to someone else, right? That's coveting. And Paul says, I wouldn't have known it was coveting, had it not been for the law, and I would have known coveting was a sin had it not been condemned by the law. The law is what gives us an understanding of what sin looks like. I would compare it uh, to an MRI, an imaging that you get in the hospital, right? Uh, MRI basically is intended to expose what is otherwise hidden. Because any one of us right now could be walking around with cancer in our body, and we wouldn't even know it. And so an MRI is what reveals a deadly disease within us that is otherwise hidden. The MRI isn't bad, but it does reveal what is bad in us, and that's what the law does. It isn't bad, but it does reveal what is bad in us. It's actually a blessing because it identifies the deadly disease of sin. Because when we covet, and and that's left unattended, Like a cancer, it grows into something much worse. We saw that in the life of David last week, didn't we? I mean, David was coveting when he looked upon a woman that wasn't his wife. That impurity then led to adultery. That adultery then led to murder. The law is a blessing because it identifies the deadly disease of sin. And the sooner you can catch it, the better off you are. The law, Paul says, is also a benefit because it provokes our sin. Now, 
when you first hear that, as was the case for me, I thought, well, that doesn't sound very good, actually. But then it made, made me think of my days when I was practicing physical therapy. Somebody would come into the clinic and they would say, my knee hurts. Well, I'm sure it did, but I needed to find out why it hurt in order to be able to effectively treat them. So what would I do? I would put them on a treatment table. I would take their leg, put it in different possessions and move it. And my attempt, what I was trying to do was provoke their pain. I wanted to see what made it hurt so that I could identify the source of the problem. And then I could most effectively treat that problem so that they could get better. That's what the law does when it provokes our sin. It helps us see that we don't just have a coveting problem in one area. We have a coveting problem in a lot of areas. That's why Paul says, it produced in me coveting of every kind. And I would go on to say, not just coveting. What about jealousy or anger or deception? The law helps us see that the source of our problem is ultimately a sinful heart. And it's not possible to manage our sinful behavior unless we deal with our sinful heart. The law reveals our sin. It, it provokes our sin. And then Paul says it condemns our sin. We have a saying that we always often say, ignorance is bliss, right? What you don't know won't hurt you. Well, that's not true when you're talking about sin. It will definitely hurt you. It's like a, the law is like a doctor that says, look, if you don't deal with this, it's going to kill you. That's a good doctor, right? You want somebody to be honest about what exists within you that could be damaging, even deadly for you. And that's what the law does. It's what exposes the deception of sin. It helps us see that what we thought was freedom to do whatever we want was actually slavery to sin's control. It's a deception. It always promises to bring life, but it always leads us to what we, where we experience true death. The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. The law is actually a blessing because it reveals our sin. It provokes our sin. It condemns our sin. It shows us how we cannot manage our sin that is completely unmanageable apart from Christ. That our heart is utterly corrupt and beyond repair. Well, I hope that these things resonate with what we know to be true. But I want to remind you, when we began looking at this passage, we made the point that Paul was speaking to believers. People who have entered into a life-giving relationship with Jesus, right? And so, why does this apply to them? And, and here's one of the reasons I think it may be true. Because I believe sometimes we sabotage our own freedom in Christ. Because even though we have been released from the law's condemnation, we can still be ruled by our own critical thoughts. In fact, to make my point, let me just ask you if any of these might sound familiar to you. I'm such a failure. I'm really not a good mom or I'm really not a good dad. This is really hopeless. I mean, I'm never going to break free of this struggle. It's just going to be a part of my life forever. I'm going to be single forever. No one has any interest in me. I'm just not enough. I'll, I'll never be enough. You see, when we do this to ourselves, when those critical condemning thoughts enter our mind, it's like 
it's like being in an abusive relationship. We sabotage our freedom in Christ by being ruled by negative thoughts. We live out lies instead of relying on God's truth. See, you are defined by who you are in Christ, and you are chosen. You're beloved. You're secure. You're redeemed. You're complete. That's what the Bible says is true. You are enough because his power is perfected in your weakness. Yes, we still make mistakes. We make poor decisions, but we are not defined by our past. In fact, the Bible continually points us forward. Let me give you a really good example of that in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Just listen to this, beginning in verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself, this is Paul speaking, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Did you see how the Bible points you forward? It wants you to fix your eyes on Jesus and let him define your life, looking closely at the gospel like you're looking in a mirror so that what you see becomes the understanding of who you are. Because many times when we get caught in this loop of criticism and self-condemnation, we're spending way too much time thinking about ourselves and what we see, not enough time thinking about who God is and what he sees, letting him define our lives through the lens of the gospel. Our true identity is determined by what God says about us. And we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Did you hear that? We, myself and you included, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We need to be reminded about who we are in him and what it means to be united to him in faith. Every day. And the reason that's true is because there's lots of messages that you hear in the world and there's lots of messages that you hear in your own head and many of them are not true. And you need to be able to know that they're not true by seeing what is true in God's word to you. And that's what you want to live by. Let me give you a few verses this week that I would encourage you to look at just to help set your mind on these things. Now, these are probably going to be familiar to you, but I want to ask you to read them. It's just one, there's just four verses, but I want you to read them. I want you to pause and reflect on them. And whether you keep a journal or not, I would ask that you, after having reflected on these verses, just write a prayer to the Lord, asking him to help you live out the truth of what he says to be true for you, okay? First verse is this, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Next one also in Isaiah is chapter 43, verse 25. So Isaiah 43, 25. The third one is Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And then the last one is in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Let the Bible point you to what's ahead of you and not be defined by what's behind you. Because you need to see yourself in the eyes of the gospel. Because that's who you truly are. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of coming to your word and being reminded of your truth about who we are in you. 
Thank you for the reminder that we are no longer bound to the condemnation of the law. Not because the law was bad. It was actually very good because the law is what pointed us to you. Knowing that we could not manage our own sin. But you had to forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Father, help us to walk in the truth of who we are because of what you see in us. Not what the world says, not what we even say in our own mind many times. But let us be defined as we look through the lens of the gospel. Let that be who we truly are. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would stand and let's sing together. Hope you see this morning that the law in and of itself is not bad, but it does reveal what is bad in us. It reveals how desperately we need a Savior and how unmanageable our sin is when we try to do it on our own. But we are reminded, Jesus came and says, you don't have to manage your sin because I came to forgive your sin and I came to set you free from sin's control. So when you enter into a relationship with me, you not only have victory over sin, but you have the power to become a new person. My love shapes your life. I think that's incredibly good news. And so I would just encourage you to walk in that truth this week. Be defined by what God says about you. No matter what voices you hear around you, including the ones in your own head, that you would put those aside and listen to what he says. You're accepted. You're loved. You belong to him. And you are eternally secure. That's who you are. Let me pray. Father, thank you for that truth, for that good, good news. Mm, We need to hear it. And as important as that is, we also need to live it. We need to take what we know to be true and let it shape how we live our lives, that we would just put the gospel on display by how we relate to others so that what we receive from you just overflows into those around us so that the gospel is not only good for us, it's good for those around us. We love as we've been loved. We forgive as we've been forgiven. We invite people to be in this glorious relationship of what it means to belong to you, our Savior, our King, our Redeemer. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.